0: Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. We are officially in season three. I feel like it's been a long time coming. Welcome. I'm your host. I'm Kara Carincivelli. I'm a holistic health and anti-diet coach. And on this podcast, we talk all about healing your relationship with food, making peace with your body, and living a life you love. A life that sets your soul on fire. A life without food obsession, without body shame. A life where you are confident around food and in your skin and with that said welcome to season three of the potty pod today we have an awesome and i mean freaking awesome interview in store we are uh interviewing we are met with virgie tovar and angela alberto today alberto today before we get into that i am Really excited to share with you guys what I have been working on for the last many, many months. I've been kind of teasing it, letting you know I've been building something uh, on Instagram. If you've been following me there at Kara's Kitchen, Kara with a C, kitchen with a K. And I've been a coach now for several years. And one of the things I've really seen the need for is more accessible care, more affordable care, more flexible care. You know, podcasts are great, Instagram posts and stories are great, books are great, they're all impactful, they all make a difference, but truly nothing is a replacement for actual professional help and guidance or a community of other humans all on the same journey as you, which is why in just a few short weeks, I will be opening doors to Food Body Soul, the membership. It's a group coaching program and sisterhood where you'll find food freedom and sanity around food confidence in your body, and a deeper connection to yourself. You will be guided on how to break free from diets, programs, protocols, rigid rules, obsessive thinking, and body shame so you can get back to what matters most to you in your life. It's a monthly membership and community for women who want support and guidance on their healing journey. And I'm so lit up about it. I am I'm really looking forward to get to welcome all of you guys into food body soul the membership so over the coming weeks i will be sharing more information about it that's all i'm going to share with you guys today i hope uh you're excited about it as excited as i am Uh, if you already know you want in you can just shoot me a dm on instagram and i'll save you a spot but i will be sharing more in the coming weeks on the podcast as well as on instagram so be sure to keep your eyes and ears peeled Whew. And like I mentioned last week, to celebrate the relaunch of the podcast, there is a giveaway happening. I am giving away your choice of either of my two books, and I'm just going to randomly select a winner each week during the month of March. Uh, my books are Body Wisdom, A Guide to Rediscovering Your Relationship with Food, Trusting Your Intuition, and Becoming Your Own Health Expert. It's a self-help development anti-diet book. And then my second is a cookbook, Vegan Bootables, easy, healthy recipes to feel great from the inside out. It's really awesome even if you're not a vegan, if you just want some more plants in your life, some more plant-based food, it's awesome. And to enter into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a ratings and review on iTunes of the podcast, or you can share a screenshot of uh, the podcast in your Instagram stories and tag me. And your reviews and your shares are what keep the podcast going. It's, you know, what helps it reach more people and also it really means so much to me. It it just makes me so happy um, when you guys leave reviews and when you share the podcast and that it's making a difference for you. Like truly it lights me up. Um, Okay, so what do we have in store for you today on the opener of the Love Your Bod Pod? I feel like we have a banger of an interview. I feel like we are coming back with a bang. Um, We're met with Virgie Tovar and... Angela Alberto, Virgie Tovar is the author of You Have a Right to Remain Fat and The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color, and Angela Alberto is a death midwife based in Portland, Oregon, and they are co-instructors of a new online course called Anti-Diet Work as Death Work, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. I took their course, Anti-Diet Work as Death Work, loved it, learned a ton, and then I immediately Uh, as soon as I completed it, reached out to them to see if they wanted to come on the pod to talk about it. And here we are. And, you know, leaving diet culture is both joyful and devastating. That's what they say about anti-diet work is death work. And it is, it's joyful and devastating. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode of the Love Your Bod Pod. Welcome to the show, Angela and Virgie. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited. I've, I'm pumped that we're having this conversation. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. For people who are not familiar with your guys' work, can you share a little bit about yourself, what you do in the world, and your own experience with food and body image issues, diet culture? Absolutely.
1: Um, I'm happy to go first. I am Angela. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am a death midwife. Um, And for those of you who may not know what a death midwife is, um, we are people who assist the dying um, at their end of life. Now, that's kind of a general um, definition. We also wear many hats. Some of the other things that a death midwife can do is um, help clients experience or explore their fear of death through different various meditation techniques. Um, We do end-of-life planning, so getting together the mundane, quote, aspects of, you know, dying, like your wills and advanced directives. Um, We support clients and their loved ones on their path of illness to death. Um, We also sit vigil with clients, um, offer caregiver respite. There's a whole um, many different hats that death doulas wear. Um, you know, we discuss burial options, uh, getting affairs in order, uh, and navigate the ways that grief can come up before, during, and after the death of a loved one. Um, I'm very passionate about this work, and I, it just came to me over the past like two years, and I did my training uh, back in January of 2019 is when I started and um I've never felt so whole with this work i will talk your ear off about death if you would let me (laughs) like it's just it's something i'm passionate about something that i don't think has to be as scary as in our culture it seems to be so that's what i do on the daily um and then as for my anti-diet journey or my diet culture let's start there first my diet culture journey There's a longer story of this in the course that you probably remember reading, Kara, but the short of it is that my mom lost both her parents when she was 10 and 12. Um, My grandmother to leukemia and her uh, father died, my grandfather died of a heart attack. So in the 90s when high cholesterol, low fat, no fat was like the rage, um, my mom began taking us to get yearly cholesterol checks when I was five. So, and like, mom, if you ever hear this, like, I love you. And I know you were doing everything with best intentions. Um, unfortunately, that, you know, as a kid and not really understanding what we're doing, that began my intro to diet culture, you know, fat phobia, um, fat was bad, whether it was fat on your plate or fat on your body, you know, low fat, no fat, no sugar, et cetera. And all of that led to major restriction throughout my whole life. I'm about a year into my anti-diet journey. And it's one of those things that, you know, when I think about a year's time, it's not a lot of time, but like where I was a year ago to where I am now, it's like the piece of the puzzle that was missing. So between my death work, where I found a lot of freedom in that work, and the anti-diet work, um, also finding a lot of freedom in that. um, I feel very grateful that both of these things have come to me at this point in my life. And um, that was actually one of the reasons that Virgie and I got together was because I was looking at everything with a death lens. It kind of hit me one day. I was like, holy shit, oh, are we allowed to curse? Great, holy shit. You know, it was, one day I was thinking about my anti-diet journey and diet culture and all that stuff. And I was like, holy shit, it is a fear of dying. Like diet culture is a fear of death, right? We do all these things to stay healthy or don't eat these foods because they could kill you sooner than later. And that's bullshit because we could really die any day. So that really made me think like, how do I, it helped me reframe like how I want to live my life in many ways. Um, also Virgie, I was just thinking today, One of the first, very first times we met was when I held the death cafe, um, which was so sweet. Like I was just reminiscing about that and grateful that you were open to joining that experience, which I can talk about at some point later.
2: Yeah, I mean, that really kind of, um, yeah, I mean, I really feel like that this year has been one um, of the culture kind of, I think the US in particular facing its Mm -hmm. mortality. Um, and, you know, I I don't know, I mean, obviously the pandemic has created, um, like has, has brought to the fore, like the conversation about mortality and death and, and illness and things like that. Um, things that we often hide and shy away from in our culture. And, and I, I like, like the rest of the culture, I found myself really drawn to these harder, more introspective topics. And that was what really drew me to the death cafe. Um. But to go back to kind of the the question, um, I ha- I'm i an author, I'm a lecturer, um, I, I've been working in the area of fat activism, um, which is essentially uh, the work around helping to end weight-based discrimination, um, helping to end the negative attitudes and behaviors that higher weight people experience, like medical discrimination, romantic discrimination. Um, There's a pretty big income gap between plus size women and straight size women. Um, Obviously, fashion discrimination is a big thing that plus size people or higher weight people face. Um, So that's what that work means to me. So I've been doing that for about 10 years. But before that, um, I was like a lot of people in that I dieted for about 20 years. Um, I grew up in, essentially I'm like, I'm a, I've always been fat. Like I was a fat baby, a fat kid. I'm a fat adult. Um, I come from a fat family. My body looks like my ancestors' bodies look like when I look at photographs of my family, I'm like, yeah, that's what I look like. Um, and living in this culture that has meant essentially being, forced to live with fat phobia for almost my entire life. Um, I was introduced to fat phobia at around the age of five, which is the typical, the average age that children in the U.S. learn fat phobia. And it really, really destroyed me. Um, I think people think that the attitudes that we have towards fat people are bred of health and concerns about health. But in actuality, um, the behavior that surrounds like the the, the abusive behavior um, that fat people face is absolutely in line with discrimination and bigotry. And so, you know, like, like anybody who has experienced discrimination, it really does kind of shape your life. It really does destroy your spirit. It really does destroy your sense of self. And, and through that process, like essentially, right, like my sense of self, my, sense of okayness, my sense of like hunger was all destroyed um, through kind of fat phobic abuse and diet culture was right there to step in and offer me the quote unquote solution, which was to essentially progressively starve myself. Um, I never became a thin person and yet I was doing really extreme disordered eating behavior for almost 20 years. And then I felt I'm really lucky that I ended up in graduate school studying body size and gender and race. And then I found fat activism and it really changed my life. Um, so that's sort of, that's, that's who I am.
0: Yeah. Thank you guys both for sharing those. You Like, I'm so impressed with how well you guys shared, just like the course you shared your guys' stories, like so well, so succinct, but I found um, Angela really, I loved when you said that this was the missing piece, like anti-diet work or uh, anti-diet work was kind of the missing piece, but do you feel like death work was also sort of the missing piece? <clears throat> yeah, it's like, <laughs> um, like the
1: image my in my head is that like, you know, death work is like this big bubble, right? And then there's like this, bubble that had to sit within the death work, within the death midwifery and it was the anti-diet piece. Like that brought, it it just helped me shed any fear of death that I had, honestly. Like the anti-diet piece was, it's like I could let go of all that I carried with me for so many years. Like, oh my God, I could have a heart attack one day, right? Like that was a huge fear of mine for so long. Um, because of my grandfather and my uncles who all had like COPD, Uncle Tommy, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it was very prevalent in, uh, um, in our family history, um, the fear of death because of like the heart, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, that really brought a lot of freedom to me and the death work and the anti-diet work definitely uh, in my world coexist on the daily. Mm-hmm. To no longer hold that fear of death because of, like, what I eat is beautiful.
0: Yeah, and it's so intense in our culture. Like, oh God, like yeah. the sugar is the devil narrative, you know? Like, processed food is, it's so intense in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Virgie, I wanted to speak to one thing you had said about how you it started experiencing fat phobia at age five and then diet, like you were experiencing these things that were, you know, disconnecting you from your hunger and your okayness and then diet culture came in being like, here, I'm the solution to your problems. And I do, you guys did touch on this in the course, um, as opposed to saying, Hey, fat phobia is the problem. We're like here, bootstrap your way to not being victims to it anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like diet culture really does, it victimizes and it re-victimizes. I mean, diet culture requires, I think of it almost as like the one 2 hit, right? Where it's like you have the abuser, um, the fat phobia, the person who is teaching you fat phobia, the people who are teaching you fat phobia, the culture that's teaching you fat phobia. And then, you know, the second, the, the, it, it's almost like a scam. You know, I mean, it is a scam. It is scam. Like you got You got one guy coming in who's like, who's just lowering your chipping away, at your sanity and your self-esteem. And then his buddy comes around the corner and is like, oh my goodness, now that you have no self-esteem, I have a, this like snake oil for you. Um, and, and I mean, literally, Angela and I were talking yesterday and I was like, we need to stop calling it diet culture and dieting. We need to start calling it trauma and triggered um, because that's what it is. Like diet culture is trauma um, when you, when you have the inclination to diet, when you diet, you're triggered. Like we need to stop calling it dieting. Cause it's not, that's not what it is. It's essentially like you, like there is no way in hell, no one who isn't wounded by fat phobia diets, period, period. Like there, there's no, like you have to have some kind of trauma in order to do that to yourself willingly. Um, And so why are we calling it dieting when we should actually be calling it like you're just triggered? You're like re-stimulated from the original trauma of being introduced to the idea that something's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think like I'm just having, I have waves more, like it's just wave upon wave upon wave of realization as I get further um, into my journey with this work. But absolutely, like um, I think that uh, there, I, I I always, I pretty much always use the metaphor of like the abusive partner, um, the abusive boyfriend, um, the person who's like, like living on your couch, eating all your food, taking all your energy and never says thank you. And only ever wants more like that is what diet culture is. Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, so I really loved how you talked about it being trauma and triggered because it's like, if you, we like commit violence, acts of violence against ourselves because of it. And I think leaving like an eating disorder or leaving behind diet culture is like leaving an abusive relationship. Like that's such a good metaphor. So I want to get into the course a little bit more. You had mentioned like how you guys came together, Angela, you had this death cafe, were you guys friends before or? No, um, I don't even know how I reached out to you about the death cafe,
1: a friend of mine, my friend, Tara, she's one of the first people who introduced me to like anti-diet work or like sent, I think she sent me Virgie's podcast. And then, you know, by the divine grace of the goddess, in my mind, I reached out to Virgie was like, Hey, I'm holding the death cafe. I'm a death doula, you know, do you want to join? And in the anti-diet work, for me and the, the connection of anti-diet work and death work came maybe like a month after that or something.
2: Yeah. We hadn't been, we, we hadn't really been friends that we had been acquainted and we were kind of working together. Like I think like Angela had hired me to do um, a little bit of work around trying to create, trying to add an element of like body acceptance and body justice and body positivity into her own business ideas. And we had just, come up with, it, it just like, they, like the, the, the intersection of like death work and anti-diet work became so obvious and glaring in these conversations. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So in the course, you, you say that when we do anti-diet work, we begin to close a door, AKA death and open another one rebirth. And I completely agree with you, like the connection between them, um there are just so many connections for those listening can you kind of explain that a little bit like what are some of the deaths that we experience the doors that we close the rebirths
2: yeah um so i mean i kind of want to explain that line in the course like people understand anti-diet work um i think i think you know there are a lot of people who think of anti-diet work simply as refusing to restrict and i was one of those people i was someone who was like oh I am just not dieting and therefore, you know, that's what I'm doing. That's the totality of what I'm doing. And and the the reality is that like, even if it was quote unquote, just that, um, that is massive, that is hugely disruptive. When you really start to understand that diet culture is connected to white supremacy, sexism, colonialism, anti-blackness, ableism, the things that really hold up our society And you start, I mean, I really do, I often use the metaphor of like the house, right? Like yeah, you think of this huge house, if society is a huge house, we are, each of us are kind of like all of the little people whose arms are holding it up. Like it takes every single one of us or it takes most of us to hold up the house because the house cannot be held up by itself. It will not hold itself um and so you know we and, and and I think about like the bricks that make up the house are unfortunately things like racism and sexism and colonialism and things like that um so when we refuse so I mean to back up a little bit <clears throat> dieting really most clearly what I found, the derivative of dieting really most clearly comes from colonialism and, um, because literally it's like, it's like the grandbaby of like, you know, colonialism. So colonialism, um, you know, really was at its height in the 1800s. Um, diet culture in many ways really began in in that time. Um, at that time there were European and U S mostly white men, um, who were going into, um, you know, lands where brown and black people lived, enslaving people, taking their land, killing them, um, you know, any, any number of acts of violence. And the reason they were able to do that was, be, and the, they rationalized all of this violence by saying that these brown and black people didn't have shame around their body and around their more animal instincts, including hunger, including sex. Um, they didn't have a a relationship with the land and with each other that was one that was based in dominion and shame for the most part. Um, And so these white men were like, well, you guys have this animal relationship to the planet, and therefore we are going to treat you like animals the way that we treat animals, which is that we kill them, we enslave them, we, we assert our domination over them. And anybody who doesn't have that shame around their body, they deserve to be punished. They deserve to be killed or exploited. This is literally the exact same ideology of diet culture. Diet culture is like if you can't control your appetite, you deserve to be punished. You deserve to have bad medical care. You deserve to have no relationship. You don't deserve to have access to clothing. You don't deserve to have access to equal pay. And you will be abused at any time. Like if people have something to say about your body, you will just have to accept it so it's like it's, it's like uh, i mean I've, as somebody who's been doing this work and in the weeds with this research for 10 years there's absolutely no doubt in my mind and there's literally the like the grandfather of clean eating 1800s the same idea right like say like people who were pursu- people who were proponents of colonialism and eugenics are the grandfathers of diet culture there's absolutely no doubt about it there's like no argument they like i mean i've done the work right and so When you really start to realize that when we refuse to diet, we are refusing to collude with one of the most important and central parts of American history and global history. And so, um, you know, that that's massive. Right. And so um, I think like, right, like when we are when we opt out of diet culture it's important and one of the reasons it's such a deep 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 decision is because it's not just the moment of like i'm going to i'm going to start eating what i want and stop you know stop hating my body that is everything that is everything like it's not just some kind of simple tiny thing, like, when we refuse to do that, the whole house has the potential of crumbling, Um, and so I think that that's, like, that's what I'm talking about when I'm, like, you know, we close the door, we open another. The first one, the the most basic one is, like, how do I I, I think, like, the big thing is, like, we're closing the door on being accepted in society, right, and I don't know that, like, people entirely realize that when they're making that decision, they are really t- like striking at the heart of that, that house that I was mentioning. Um, so Angela is actually going to talk about like the, the kinds of deaths that, that we face as we do anti-diet work, um, and that we talk about in the course.
1: Totally. Um, <clears throat> so Virgie came up with this list, um, after one of our first conversations and it's really beautiful and very like, you know, for someone who's a year into their journey of anti-diet work, I so love that um, this has come up for me, like being able to work with this list because it's spot on. So as you know, Kara, in the course, um, these are the, uh, the deaths that we believe happen when you say no to diet culture. So there's the death of bootstrapping, control, social ease, the thin dream, Normative desirability, whiteness, able-bodiedness, and gender conformity.
0: Yeah, the bootstrapping one um, is particular. I mean, they're all interesting to me. Like all of the deaths that that we experience, and the bootstrapping one was one that I was going back and reading today, and just thinking about how like like it's your fault. And like, if you are not experiencing what you want in the world and you're not having the success that you want, or if you are not getting, you know, losing the weight that it's your fault and just like how pervasive that is in like our productivity culture and in the American dream culture. And it's just like, ah, like I, and I can't imagine how many people are thinking that it's their fault if they're experiencing suffering, like right now in the world with just like COVID and the pandemic. And
1: it's so fucked to think that that is the mentality. I mean, I've carried it with me for however long previous to this time of my life, you know, like the self-hatred, like on a personal note, that was one of the first things for me that I closed the door on that I buried when I started doing my death work and the anti-diet work was like, no more. Like I am a divine being, you're a divine be- being, like we all have this divinity within us. And um, exploring that, you know, I feel like there was a rebirth of finally gaining that freedom of like, oh, this is not me. It is the culture in which we live. It is the systems that have been put upon us for you know, 400, 500 years, whatever it is.
0: And I, I wanna get into the topic of grief as well because you guys talked about um, that there's two types of grief, something you really learned when you were going through the course. And I thought it was really interesting with the bootstrapping one that this was like a big aha moment for me in the course was when you talk about how we we find it easier to blame ourselves when things don't go our way than deal with the huge fact that like our society is just cruel and inhumane and I'd always wondered like why do we blame ourselves so much and it really clicked for me when you were like because dealing with like oh my god the world can be really kind of I don't know dark and evil is just so much to be with
2: yeah yeah I mean absolutely I think um when I was deep in diet culture, the promise that diet culture makes is just starve yourself and you can have everything you want. Um, And I think that the, 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 unfortunately, like a lot of anti-diet work um, and body positivity offers sort of a slightly different version of that, which is that through not dieting, you can have everything that you want. Um and, and I mean and I think it's important to have that critique of both, that awareness of like, and I understand why, right? Like, I mean, like and I've been someone who has has I've done this, I've I've made the mistake of like I think framing things that way. Um, because I think I but like like to begin with, right, the very For the first five years being anti-diet really was it felt like I was dancing on the grave of like this horrible awful poop garbage and it was like a party and I felt like I was like in the company of amazing people other fat activists who like we really felt like we had found like the special the secret key to the secret world and it absolutely kind of was that but I think that like as I'm as I'm at this point like 10 years in I've come to really realize, oh, like, you know, and, and this really gets to the question of like the two types of grief, grief that we end up discussing in the class, which is like existential and systemic or systematic grief. Um, so what in general, right? Like, so existential grief um, is the grief that every human being for all time has experienced, right? Like, so the very first generation of human beings all the way up to now, they have always dealt with a sense of loneliness occasionally, certainly a sense of confusion about why am I even here? Maybe a sense of isolation, like nobody understands me. Um, maybe a sense that like, I don't know if I belong with the group of people that I've been, that I'm like, that I am around. Like conf- like these kinds of feelings are things that every human being is going to face at some point or another. There is no avoiding it. Even if we lived in the most just imaginable, you know, incredibly fair society imaginable, we would still live with this. And this is, this is what existential group, there's no escaping from this. And we shouldn't be afraid of this, because it's what it means to be a person. The second type is systemic grief, the grief, the pain and the loss that we have from living in an exceedingly unjust, unfair society, a society that relies on hierarchy and unfairness in order to survive and perpetuate itself. Now, um, you know, this is not inevitable. Like we could live in a fairer society and not have this kind of grief, right? Um, and so I think it's important, like we don't, uh, uh, we're not taught to understand the differences between those two things. And I think again, going back to, so, and so diet culture lies to us and says, I can get you out of existential grief and I can get you out of I can get you out of systemic grief. I can get you out of both, and it's a lie. It can't get you out of either, right? Like, it, no, nothing can get you out of the existential version of grief, and um, and diet culture is itself systematic unfairness. So it's only ever perpetuating the systemic grief. Anti diet work, alternately, similarly, cannot solve "quote unquote" solve the first type, the existential type, there is no solution for that. There doesn't need to be a solution, like it's good, right, it's important. Um, But it does have the possibility to offer some solution for the second type. Um, Anti-diet work is about dismantling a very significant part of systemic injustice around body and food. And so I think it's important to, as you're you're doing anti-diet work, as you're taking this course, to really start to learn which type is coming up at what times, right? Um, because I think what we're uh, sometimes, right, like for, and I want to give like a really concrete example, okay? So um, one of the things that I talk about all the time when I'm working with people um, in this area is I'm like, listen, when people say they want to lose weight, they usually mean, I want love, I mm-hmm. want respect, I want dignity, I want, you know, like, I want these things that every human being wants, right? Um, And so I I think about, like, an existential sense of grief. We're taught to, like, turn to dieting in the moments when we feel confused or unsure or we feel like we failed at something. Um, Similarly, we turn to dieting when somebody abuses us. So this is a perfect example of, like, you know, how, like, like, loneliness, confusion, a sense of failure, that's... Every human being will face that in their lifetime, right? And you, you, don't, you don't have to try and escape that. And dieting is never going to fix that. And similarly, right, we diet to escape the abuse that diet culture created. Um, and so as we, as we kind of like heal and begin to go into recovery from dieting, it's important to recognize like, is this a moment where I'm just having a human feeling? Like I'm just having a feeling that like the probably the earliest caveman felt in some way, or am I having a feeling that's literally because of diet culture, because of racism, because of sexism, et cetera, um, and and I think what's important about that is like that the action is different, right? When you're um, when you're feeling existential grief, the solution, quote, unquote, the thing that you do is you sit with it. You take care of yourself. You do the things that you do when you need self-care, when you're dealing with systemic grief, your, your job is to protect yourself, to heal yourself, and then to take action against it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like it's so important to know when you need to have stillness and when you need to have action and, and, um, I think the last thing I'm going to say is like people particularly in the United States keep looking to the pursuit of perpetual bliss as the quote-unquote solution to the human problem or the human dilemma. This is actually connected to colonialism and manifest destiny actually Um, essentially believing that we're superhumans who rule the earth and can never die um, which is literally what manifest destiny is. Um, So in fact we are just human. So there's no solution, quote unquote, to, to being human. We don't need a solution. Uh, we're totally perfect as we are. So mm-hmm. I think, again, the work is in the moments when we are having this so superhuman, very human experience of confusion, sadness, failure, right? Like, how do we take care of ourselves? But then how do we like, when we're experiencing the other type, the systemic type, how do we take care of ourselves in the name of action. Right. And I, and I think like Mm -hmm. understanding the distinctions between those two things helps us feel one, like a universal sense of, of connection with all of our ancestors, all the humans who have come before us, who have had these feelings when in fact, like in, in, in like in reaction to, or like in opposition to the fact that diet culture makes us feel isolated and lonely and like a hundred percent of the time. Um, so I can keep going, but I'm going to stop there.
0: (laughs) Okay, Bridget, you made so many good points there. And I really love the art, uh, how articulate and how um, you were in explaining all of those things and being able to distinguish between those two types of grief that you're experiencing is a game changer. And I find it, I'm learning this more and more uh, as I've gotten older and the longer that I've been a coach that we're so like feelings adverse in this culture. Like we're so afraid of like uncomfortable feelings of like, sadness disappointment grief like discomfort and like it's almost like we're just like i'm curious if you know why we're so negative like so-called negative feeling averse like why we try so hard to be like good vibes only toxic positivity like i would i would love to jump
1: in on this um so think about it like okay my first thought when you say that is like think of the word death or dead or dying how averse we are to using those words so like For example, um, there's this experience where my my aunt's dog had died. But when she called my mom to say the dog had died, she said, we lost Max. And my mom was like, well, did you find him? You know? (laughs) And my aunt's like, no, like, no, like he died. My mom's like, oh, and I feel like it's, I think we're so adverse to these things that are negative or bad or scary or whatever, because we don't have the tools, how to deal with them. Also like to piggyback onto the word bliss, the way I frame death work or the way I frame negative emotions is like to sit in the dark is where you find the light to like get comfortable in the uncomfortable. Like, you know, walk up to the thing that you think is scary and try to touch it or try to understand it better or try to like see it in a way where um, it's more something we all can relate to. You know, it's, it's a very, we all experience these human emotions. And I think too, like as a culture, like we don't have tradition anymore. We don't have, and Virgie, maybe you could speak to this too. Cause you grew up in a Mexican household, which is a little different from my experience. Like when it comes to death or things that are negative, like you don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable, right? But if we gave ourselves a language or gave ourselves um, permission to like also acknowledge, like this is hard to speak about, but I'm gonna speak about it anyway. I don't know, maybe it'll be easier. And, you know, there's bliss in the sorrow. Like when you experience grief, you know, it can like break your heart open. You know, for example, in, in when I've experienced death in my life, um, death of a loved one, let's say, I have never been so present and so like aware of like the beautiful magic of like a raindrop falling or something or like the light on the trees, right? And like there's this beauty in the things that scare us and there's this beauty in the darkness that I think. Um, yeah we're afraid of so we try to you know good vibes only and that's just not that's not how it is you have to find bliss and magic in the darkness as well because we are made of both it's dual it's duality right
0: yeah my my current life coach says pain is sacred and I really love that and she also says pain is the portal which I also yes
1: yes yes a thousand times yes yeah
0: I'd love to shift gears here and talk about two of the other deaths that we experienced that you mentioned in the course. The first one was gender performance and normative desirability. And these both really speak to femininity in our culture. And you quote Sandra Gilman. The first thing that you say, in the course about gender conformity is that dieting is a process by which the individual claims control over her body and thus shows her ability to understand her role. And I was like, wow Can you explain that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, I mean, um... Essentially, you know, like, I love that quote from Sander Gilman. And that quote really blew my mind when I read one of his books on this on the topic of fatness. He's written a few books on this. Um, And, you know, essentially, right, like, dieting is is a performance, right? It's like, and I think one of the one of the easiest ways to explain it is like, dieting isn't just something that you do as an individual in your home. It's something that you do with everybody out in society. Um, Right? Like, so for example, if dieting were not part of a performance, you wouldn't see people at bakeries, like, like talking to strangers about, you know, their feelings about like a cupcake or eating a cookie or how evil it is, or how they're going to have to work, quote, unquote, work it off later, how they're being bad, right? Like, there's a real public side to dieting. And I think Sandra Gilman's point here is around this is how women dieting, like, you know, the the experience of dieting, which I think we can all say is objectively negative. um, This is a, this is a way that women show that they understand that negative experiences are expected for women and that women should perform an understanding that they are second-class citizens through undertaking this type of suffering um and so i think that's kind of what he's talking about like certainly i i like i have so many thoughts about this like for, I, one of the things that's really clear to me is like diet culture is an act of war um diet culture is something like what we call diet culture is what people do to other people during war as an act of war. Um right.
1: starvation
2: starvation is a method of war. Um and diet culture is absolutely about undertaking a form of starvation long term over the lifetime of women like over a woman's lifetime primarily women. Um so I think of this as like you know patriarchy is predating like eating women's bodies and spirits through this starvation process um and i say it in my in like my last book you have the right to remain fat it is not thinness that is being eroticized it's the submission that thinness represents um and so like when we begin to understand that um that this is about like gender oppression we can more clearly um like understand why diet culture is like so particularly harmful to women, and I want to kind of say like right, like um, at this point in history, women are more educated, um, are increasingly making more money, they are um, increasingly becoming first-time homeowners, like single homeowners. Um, women are outperforming men in pretty much every arena, but they but men maintain the power through the myth that their desire matters, that their desire for us matters. So if we all collectively decided today that men's desire for our bodies didn't matter, men would lose whatever remains of their power. So I just want to be clear about that, like systemically, just from like a cash money perspective, or like an education, number of MAs, number of PhDs, right? Like just from like a straight empirical numbers perspective, men don't have any of the power they used to have that made diet culture, um, you know, work. Uh, in the past, right because like the whole idea behind um, diet culture in, in a lot of ways was that re- it relied upon women not having rights. Like women couldn't even have their own library card till like 1974. They couldn't have their own credit card. They couldn't get an abortion until 1973. They didn't have access to birth control until 1960. right? Like they couldn't have certain they were literally legally barred from certain jobs. like it was totally legal to discriminate on the basis of gender. Um, and so right, Diet culture was, like, literally, like, you have to be tiny if you're going to have financial stability, if you're going to have a husband who's going to make sure that you have a home, if you're going to have children, which are going to make you, like, who are going to take care of you in old age, right? Like, women had to do this shit because literally the system was created in a way they couldn't access the things that women now have right? Like we can have our own library card, we can have our own PhD, we can have our own home, and we're fucking killing it. And so the only thing that like in terms of desirability, the only thing that's like really holding us back is the myth of this power that's like been grandfathered in even though men were outperforming men in every imaginable way. So I think it's important to like to put that out there. And the last thing I'm going to say is that sexism and patriarchy like diet culture is they're not just systems, they are forms of trauma, Mm -hmm. And our, our pursuit of desirability, what we call our pursuit of desirability is about being triggered. Um, we're, we're again, going back to that concept, right? Like we're just triggered. Our obsession with being desirable to men is about sexist trauma. We're like, whenever we're chasing, um, the desirability of men, it's because we've been traumatized by sexism and we need to stop understanding this as about like, it's not about the genuine, natural, authentic human experience of desire. It's about trauma. It's about control, right? Because like the authentic, amazing, beautiful, natural experience of desire is so complex and so organic. And so like, I think about like, and I, I oh, when I think about desire and I talk about this in the course, right? Like in one of the sections I wrote, I think about being a little girl and how desire was never like, I mean, it was like never a question of like my body size, like before I was introduced to diet culture and fat phobia, I remember the little crushes that I had and like, you know, and these, the boys I liked were all over the map, right? But I, I, I and, and I felt like the crushes that we had for each other were so obvious, so natural and so simple, right? There was nothing complicated about it. It was like, I see you, you see me in all of my complexity, like you love that I have this loud, ridiculous, silly personality and my body is like an extension of that beauty and similarly I see you like classmate with a bowl haircut you know who's tiny, like I see you and you're like your sort of shyness and your beauty and your specialness and your body is a part of that beauty that I see and and what we have in our culture right now that is not desire, that is just like a bunch of trauma and triggers and everybody fucking like, I mean it's, it's terrible that we live in a society that doesn't teach people how to connect Um, but like to use the word desirability to talk about what what our culture is discussing when they're using that word it's just completely inappropriate it's a misnomer Um, and I'm going to stop there because I'm clearly getting very passionate about this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you want to add anything Angela otherwise I I have uh, like further questions.
1: In my thought my mind goes back to um just like how old the patriarchy is like how long it's been around like when you think about the fact that at one point in our existence as humans like matriarchal cultures and the feminine archetype like thrived and then as you know in my in my opinion as religions came around it got squashed the the goddess and the feminine cultures so it's been a it's been a long fight Against the patriarchy, but um, I have a lot of hope right now that as we're waking up to the, the way these wounds have been like in our in like in our blood, in our bones, like in our matriarchal lines, um, I have a lot of hope for the future right now that we're gonna you know break the house of patriarchy, break the house of these structures that um, hold us, not just women, like anybody who has been oppressed. We're going to knock it all down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're healing all of these wounds. I think that's like the thing of this generation is like we're all yeah. like, healing ancestral trauma. like, <laughs> uh, And that
1: literally like the physicality of the ancestral trauma is is so amazing to me. Like, you know, um, that, that really blows my mind how much we carry in our bodies, our wise, wise bodies, this like house for our spirit. You know, there's a lot that we carry in here. hmm just the light but also the dark sometimes
0: i'm wondering if um virgie can you give an example of the you had said our wanting to adhere to like our desirability is a trauma of of sexism can you give an example of like what does that mean exactly
2: yeah i mean so um gosh, I'm like trying to, it's, it's like so hard. Like it's, I'm such a like theory nerd. I'm always like thinking about like huge systemic ideas. And sometimes it's hard for me to, to create a, a concrete example, but essentially right. Like, so the way that we think of desirability as a society now um, has to do with a historically created idea that, of beauty that is racist, fat phobic, ableist, transphobic, you know, et cetera, all the things, right? Um, so mm-hmm. at at the end of the day, um, like when we are attempting to quote unquote access desirability, we're actually attempting to access racism, sexism, hierarchy, the things that we know that harm human beings. Um, and so uh, like we, and I mean, I've been I've been a, a participant in this, like through all throughout all of diet culture, um, trying to aspire to a beauty ideal that really came. From pretty much like the confluence of tons of violence, and Mm -hmm. thinking that through that I could, um, I could access love. And so I I think like to get to get a little bit more kind of in the weeds, an example would be So our pursuit of of desirability is about being triggered and re-stimulated from the original trauma, which for all of us happened in childhood. So for me, it was like being taught that I, that like essentially boys could abuse me if they didn't think that I was thin enough to be their girlfriend. So being abused by boys and being told that if I was thin, that they would want me And that they would then stop abusing me and start trying to have sex with me. That is trauma. And most girls have gone through some version of that. I mean, it's essentially just being initiated into rape culture. Like, boys are a threat to you emotionally and physically, perhaps. They teach you that their approval, their their sexual desire, their sexual approval is what's going to keep you safe from them. (laughs) And then we internalize that. And so every time that we keep trying to become attractive to that, to that, to men, we're re-stimulated from that original moment when a boy or a group of boys taught us that if they didn't want to sleep with us, we weren't going to be safe. Mm. And that's just, that's just trauma, right? And so like, I mean, I, when I think about like, and, and again, I talk about this in the course in like one of the sections where I'm just like, I went from before i learned the very few years that i live without fat phobia and this like beautiful magic and this it was so easy to connect like the people i loved whether it was like my friends or it was like boyfriends and our little sweet child crushes it was so simple there was nothing standing between me connecting to like another human being then once fat phobia came in all of a sudden it's now impossible to find people to connect to it's impossible to find men who respect me and who love me and who treat me well um and then and I kind of I kind of think about like how um right like because the like because pain was what I associated with the experience of like interacting with boys From then on, like when I went on in adulthood to try and find a partner, and all I faced was rejection and pain, I was used to it by then. I thought it was normal for things to be painful. I did not see them as as red flags. Right. And I think like, you know, that, that man that we're all taught to desire, which is a wealthy, white, heterosexual, able-bodied man, that man is just the archetype of the confluence of all the traumas and coinc- not coincidentally, it's the very man who is considered the ideal and has been considered the ideal since the 1800s. Um, and right, like, so we, we're all pursuing that same man who has been positioned as the ideal man since colonial times. Um, and he represents Rejection. Like he represents how you don't measure up. Like he was invented to prove that there were good kind of people the superior kind of people and the inferior kind of people and and like so so I think what's hard is like what the hell does that mean that we're like all looking for that man to like quote-unquote love us or quote-unquote desire us that is literally like it's like Stockholm syndrome like I don't know how else you could put it right it's like it's literally Stockholm syndrome um so I don't know if that like helped elucidate kind of like what I was saying
0: yeah that further explained it and it's it's so eye-opening eye or like paradigm shifting to think about how, what you were saying before about how we're, we're externally liberated. So we can like vote, go to college, get an MBA, get an abortion. We have these external types of liberations, but we've all been internally suppressing ourselves so that we can be desired mm-hmm. by like the patriarchy. And if we were to no longer care so much about being desired based on, our culture's idea of normative desirability, which you guys do explain in the course, but like what we see as attractive, like young, thin, able-bodied, white, if we weren't all striving to that, like how many hands from that metaphorical house would like disappear, be gone, not holding up the house anymore.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, I think like, you know, I mean, women were, women were submitting to patriarchy for survival until until relatively recently and now we're just grandfathered in we're just literally like we have all the systemic power that women didn't have and the reason they had to suffer for so long because they were systemically denied access we're just grandfathered into that paradigm and we're doing it even though we have to your like to quote you like that external liberation
1: i'm what's coming up in my mind right now is just the i mean okay so for me this work is very personal right now so I'm going to, you know, I, I talk about myself a lot in regards to this work, because that's the lens that I have right now. Sure. You know, I look forward to the day that I've been in it 10 years, and I can speak about it as a more um, societal based way in the way that Virgie does so beautifully. But in my experience right now, one of the things I've been working on, and as you know, from the course, I talk about how, when I went to write normative desirability, like right for that course, my initial thought was like, i gonna let Virgie handle this one, like, I don't want to touch that you know and it's because that's like the hottest topic for me in my in my personal world right now is like i was the thin you know white i was a belly dancer for a very long time so i was like a thin white belly dancer and like desired by a lot of men at one point so my big work is like stepping back keeping you know continuing to shed that indoctrination of i need to be desired by others and i'm continually asking myself what do I desire what turns me on what brings me pleasure what is you know not even just like in a sexual way but in a you know by the things that I eat the clothing that I wear the um activities that I choose to do my you know have like bring my time to like where and how can I flip the word of being desired to what do I desire? Like, what's, what am I desiring?
0: Mm.
1: Like, let me own it. That is mine to own. It is not about what anybody else thinks. And that's been the hardest um, piece for me right now is to let go of, you know, some days it's hard. And I just want like a stranger to be like, you're beautiful, you know, but no, I have, I have to be that stranger for myself. <laughs> like, you know, it's, um, it's really amazing how old of a wound that is.
0: Yeah. I really related to your story. I feel like we have a lot of similarities there. I just grew up thinking that like the most important thing was how pretty my, my nice to look atness, Like it was so important for men to desire me and want to sleep with me. And that's like the only place I knew where to search to find validation and love. I really connected to your story, I feel like it's really similar. And I, I don't, I don't know, like, is it wrong to want to be desired? Like, is it wrong to want people to think you're beautiful? Do you think that that's like, I'm curious of both of your guys' opinion. Like, is that existential normal, or is that systematic, that desire to want people to want you kind of a thing?
1: I don't think,
0: I don't know. I don't think it's
1: off the bat. I don't think it's wrong, but I'm tired of putting my value in someone else's hands. I want that for me. I want to. I want to know that I don't need that, and that I have enough value to know that I am desired. Like I want to turn myself on. Like I, you know, like I say, I want to be my own booty call. I loved that. You no, know? like fuck yeah, <laughs> and that feels so important to me because my pleasure has always been about others. Do I look hot enough? You know, um, I don't know. Like it, and no, fuck all that noise. Like I'm, I'm just very done with it. And I think this is like a little sidebar, but like attachment styles have a lot to do as well with like how we choose partners, like the anxious avoidant trap or a secure partner, et cetera. And that was also something that was really big for me in this work of like coming to this idea of like, I'm gonna desire myself is like acknowledging how I attach to others and how I showed up in a relationship at one point and put up with a lot of bullshit <laughs> for you know, because I thought that's what love was, right? And it's so not.
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, I don't think that it's wrong to want to be desired. I just think that we have created a notion of desire as a society that is so far from like anything. Like desire is about intuition, and this goes back to diet culture, right? Like um, desire, like diet culture erodes at, at our sense of. hunger like right it forces us to question that it unseats our instincts and desire and hunger are very connected um so right like I don't know how you can create desire with people who have been literally told to deny their intuition like desire in its in this sort of native human form is very driven by intuition it's driven by instinct um, and, and like what, what we have created in our society as a concept of desirability is like completely off. I guess what I'm saying is like, there, there's like the world that we have now, there's a world in which desire is, e- is easier, I would argue, right? Like, be, because right there's a world in which like without diet culture, without a lot of these systemic injustices, people act from that instinct. People act from intuition um, and it doesn't make things so complex. What we call in desire in our, what we call desire in our culture is actually about hierarchy pairing in some ways where it's just like, where it's like, how far are you on the scale of one to 10? And can you get people who are higher than you or equal than you to pool resources with you to then maintain the hierarchy? That is what we call desire. That's not desire. Like that's, that's some other thing. I don't know. I I guess, You could just call it oppression, or you could just call it poop garbage, but that has nothing to do. Like I don't know, that is the antithesis of instinct. That's the antithesis of intuition. Um, so I would say no, it doesn't feel. I don't think it's wrong to be to want to be desired, but like what we understand is that is so far from like what I consider the actual lived reality of desire.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: I think
1: it's also knowing like that you like whoever hears this like in regards to desire, you deserve so much. Like you deserve respect, you deserve love, like you deserve all these things before even putting on the table, you know, opening up yourself to a partner or something. That that feels like a big thing is like, no, I deserve so much. And like, that's like, you know, zoom out and look at anti-diet work. Like we deserve so much more than what we're given in this culture. So much fucking more, so much more respect, so much more, self-love so much more god a lot
0: (laughs) yeah more food
1: (laughs) yes yes Uh, yeah
0: okay i feel like we are going over time here and i i could talk to you till 2022 if i had the Uh, i had the opportunity (laughs) um so i want to wrap this up um if I, one last question for the both of you and we'll call it quits, but thank you so much uh, for coming on. And I want everybody listening to go enroll in your course, Anti-Diet Work is Death wreck. But what are you most excited about in life right now? You wanna go first, babe, Virgie?
2: Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think like, it's funny, I'm having this, du- this dual thing where like, we just, um, my partner and I just got two little tiny baby dwarf bunnies And they're so sweet, and they're so cute, and they're so – it's, like, there's this thing about caring for another thing that really creates this, like, beautiful – like presence and joy and delight right especially like a new life and also I'm kind of finding that like I'm grappling with like the sense of grief of like oh my goodness these bunnies mean that I can do this and I can't do that and I have to do this and I have to be responsible and it's very in, in line with like the theme of the course which is kind of the that duality of like you know there's like there's just a shadow side there is no light without the shadow side there there just is the shadow side is always there and if you kind of know how to look for it um you can kind of like I don't know like find the um I I think I'm excited about like having this new these new tools to understand like an experience like having new bunnies and the loss of freedom and also the incredible joy of that so that's what I'm excited about right now (laughs) (laughs)
1: you have furry children now
2: basically
1: yes yeah um so right now I I will tell you my top three things um first off I'm very excited because the other night I dyed my hair teal and magenta and I've been wanting to do this for the longest time and I truly feel I had okay I had a dream before I got my hair dyed where my friend Gretchen uh was who does my hair leaned in close as she was cutting my hair in my dream. And she's like, pay attention because this is going to be a spiritual haircut. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I woke up and I was like, all right, Monday, here we go. Spiritual haircut. And I'm excited about this because it's something I've always wanted to do. And I feel like my soul is now on my outside in form of my hair. Um, so that's really exciting to me because it gives me the permission to like, you know, embrace myself fully and Keep moving towards the things that bring my heart uh, joy. So my blue hair is what I'm excited about, and I'm just super fucking excited that like through this through this podcast, Kara, like thank you and Virgie through the course, thank you that death work is getting to more and more people. How important that work is, like how important it is to make peace with your own mortality because it brings such freedom. And there's, there's so many ways to do that. So if you're interested in the death work, like hit me up. I will point you in the direction either with my own offerings or other people who also do the work. But I'm very excited about that. Um, and I guess lastly, I am an avid uh, equestrian. I have ridden horses from a very young age and I finally found a barn. I was barnless for like a year and a half. So I'm excited to get horses back into my life for sure.
0: Yes, lots of fur babies. <laughs> yes. And Sarah,
1: are you, um, did I see that you got engaged?
0: I did, yeah. yes. I what are you excited about? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm really excited about this podcast episode and your course. <laughs> um, and I mean, I'm excited to be engaged because I didn't ever think that I would get engaged because I was never one of those girls that like dreamed about her wedding um, or like in the scenes in the movies with the like super romantic proposals, like make my skin crawl. I've always <laughs> kind of like been suspicious as to why our culture is like so, like so obsessed with marriage and like the wedding industrial complex. So I never really thought mm-hmm. I'd get to this point. Um, but, but Brent is awesome and I'm excited about that next chapter with him, so. Nice
1: it's really sweet to commit to yourself like to commit to your relationship in that way like i got married a year ago um and similar to you i never i always saw myself as a wife i never saw myself as like a bride i never like you know i just wanted food and drinks at the wedding like it didn't have to (laughs) be some big fucking no white like please if i was wearing a white dress i'd spill shit all over it like no thank you (laughs) um but yeah, it's awesome. Congratulations for the, for the, um, the committing to the relationship in that way. That's rad.
0: Yes. Thank uh, you both so much for being here. I'm so grateful for your time. I really hope I didn't interfere with any plans because we ran over, but I'm so happy. I'll tag you in all the things and all your links and let you know when the podcast comes out. Sounds oh, thank good. Thank you so
2: much.
1: This was so lovely. I really appreciate it. Anytime, dude. Anytime.
0: And that's a wrap of our first episode back for season three. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode was helpful for you and you got a lot out of it, one of the best ways to give back to the podcast is to leave a ratings and review on iTunes or share it in your Instagram stories and tag me or share it with a friend who you think would benefit. And of course, during the month of March, Anyone who leaves a review or shares it in their story will be entered to win a giveaway of either of my two books. A winner will be randomly selected. So if you want to enter into the giveaway and get two of those books, then you know you know what to do. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so grateful to have you here, and I will see you guys all next week on the Love Your Bod Pod.